0: And welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am doing really, really well this week. I've had a really crazy, crazy week, as you know, but I'm doing awesome. This has been a great week. So many fun and exciting things have happened this week in my house. The number one thing is that we got a puppy and um, that's kind of, yeah, that's the that's the big news around here. She's really sweet and everybody loves her and she's been here this whole week so far. So that's been taking up all of our attention and all of our, what is that? I mean, I guess there is no word for attention, everything. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's fun. And it's something different than me coming on this week and saying how close the holidays are and how the weather is been yeah. so well, lovely. We still so. did it. We still did yeah. it. <laughs> What's her name? I don't remember her name. I know we've talked about it. Yeah, no, her name is Lila. And um, she's oh. a German short haired pointer. Yeah, so just a really simple name. We've actually had dogs before. I mean, <laughs> we've had a lot of dogs before. A long time ago I had a miniature pincher before I even had my second son. This is years ago. Um, and her name was Lola. And she was one of my favorite dogs I've ever had. I love her and miss her so much. And then we had another dog named Lily, and she was another favorite. So we kind of combined those two names. And some people might think that's a little strange of way to name a dog. But <laughs> I had the idea. And I was like, you know, I love those names. I loved Lola. I loved Lily. I miss those dogs. Maybe I'll just combine their names and make a new dog name and call this one Lila. And then once I had the idea, I like couldn't I really liked the name and I couldn't like stop thinking about it. And I tried to come up with other names, but this is where we're at. Her name is Lila (laughs) and she's just so precious and so sweet and a lot of work. I forgot how much work uh, puppies actually are, but we're all really enjoying it. It's always such a joy to have a new baby, a new baby animal in the house. You know, I'm all about that life.
1: Yeah. So my other niece's name is Lila and her birthday is today. My, You know, my husband's oh, sister. Yeah. yeah. So when he said Lila, I'm like, oh, no, I don't think I've I don't think I've asked you the name yet because I would have definitely made that connection. Yeah. And it's her first birthday today. So super Aww. exciting all the way
0: around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about you, Melissa? How has your week been? It's been
1: great. I Two got a dog, but I got one like three months ago, and I forgot to ever mention it. And it's yeah. great. His name is his name is Remy, and so we both have little puppies, and that's a new life for me. You know, you know me and my effort to be more human and have right. animals, and how, our, how much I wanted my kids to have animals. But he's he's great. He's awesome, and he's like four months old now, and he's doing really well. I have no complaints. He sleeps through the night. If you can sleep through the night, you can live in my house. That's really my only. Even the kids, I was kind of like, if you guys don't start sleeping through the night, we're going to have some issues. (laughs) But (laughs) as long as an animal sleeps through the night, I'm like, you're welcome
0: here. Eat all my food. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because I always see that people kind of crack on and make fun of, you know, dog moms and you know, pet parents who say stuff like, oh, it's like having a baby. And they're like, oh, it's actually nothing like having a baby. Well, you know what? It actually is just like having a baby. I've kind of come to figure that out this week. Um, they don't sleep at night and they just whine a lot and they need a lot of attention and snuggles and cuddles and they get into things. And yeah, it's a lot like having a baby. I mean, I guess you can't put a baby in a cage and leave it there while you go to the grocery store. But
1: not legally other
0: than
1: that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Other that, than that, that, well, um, That's a big I thing. Like it's very yeah. baby like. <laughs> yeah you're right yeah that was my big fear I was like if this dog doesn't sleep I don't know what to do because now my kids are sleeping I'm like I can't go back I can't do this again right <laughs> so yeah <laughs> I totally agree with you but yeah fun new adventures and dogs this is you're you're very akin to the dog life so I'm excited and I've I've learned everything from you right is that what we're saying right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah I've learned stuff from you there you go
0: I'm very flattered and honored, and I'm happy that your puppy journey is is going well still four months later. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we will get right into the episode now. Breaking into the movie business is no small feat for aspiring filmmakers. Unless you really know somebody who knows somebody, or you have a ton of established connections and access to a lot of money your chances of becoming a big-time movie producer are probably pretty slim. It takes money, as I said, and the right kind of talent to produce a movie that is worthy of attention and that can compete with the big Hollywood titles that are released all throughout the year. Of course, there are people out there who enjoy low budget and indie films, and I guess they really do have their place among movies. But one genre that I refuse to compromise my standards on is the horror and thriller genre. So I've said many times on the show that I am a big scary movie buff. I love my scary movies, but I am really, really picky about the ones that I want to watch. And typically the low budget variety I kind of go away from them thinking that that was a waste of my time and I really just want the Really big production, high production horror films. I love the special effects. I love, you know, the good quality acting. I want to be truly scared. And I feel like those low budget films just don't do it for me. Why are you gasping, Melissa? You don't like scary movies in the first place. I know.
1: I just (laughs) wanted to judge you in the middle of that, just for everyone that was listening that like loves low budget. I just wanted to be,
0: (laughs) I wanted to be their
1: voice, to be quite honest with you.
0: (laughs) Listen, everyone is free to love what they want to love, but low budget horror films are just. The worst of the worst for me. I just can't do it.
1: Yeah, no, I I get the cheesy aspect of stuff like that. But here's my question. What's the difference between like a suspenseful movie? Like what makes it a horror movie? I was thinking about this earlier because I like one movie that I always think about that scared the living daylights out of me. And I don't think it's considered horror, but maybe it is. What Lies Beneath? That Michelle Pfeiffer, Harrison Ford one, where she's like, no, that's going to be a
0: thriller. That's a thriller. Mm, That's horror. I was horrified.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How does one become one and not the other? So, real life question.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is not necessarily a real life answer. This is a Mandy answer. But I feel like the horror movies are the ones where it's more gory and like your slasher films, where it's like, you know, like a scary serial killer on the loose, something like that. And you're seeing all these people like getting murdered and blood spurting out of their arteries and things like that. To me, that's a horror movie. So um, it can be like any kind of like any of those clown killer movies. Any of those are like I count I consider horror. The thrillers are the ones I think are more and I'm really big into like psychological thrillers. So like the ones that just make you just feel really creeped out and skeeved out. So you mentioned like what lies beneath. That's a really good example. Also that movie, um hide and seek. Did you see that one? I is that that freaking love that tell. movie. That one. Wait, no, that's not it. What am I talking about?
1: The Britney Murphy it? one.
0: No, not Britney Murphy. um Dakota fan. Or wait, is it Britney Murphy? I thought Dakota. No, now I think I'm getting two different movies confused. <laughs> um, but hide and seek is also really good. Don't speak was my. I think mine's don't speak. Or is that just a No Doubt song? I don't. We should have Googled. <laughs> I really don't know now, but those are the ones. And but there's not really a lot of blood and gore, but it's just really creepy. So my favorite thriller category movie of all time—it's just an all-around excellent movie—is Gothica with Halle Berry. Um, I don't know. If I was going to say that. I saw that yes. in the theaters, and it made me scream. I literally screamed like three times. But it's not times. horror. It's, I mean, I guess there's blood in it. Like, there's a scene where it shows, like, blood and stuff. But it's not like a slasher movie. You know what I'm saying? You're not actually seeing anybody being, like, tortured and just, like, bloody stabbed and all that. So that's what I call horror. So today's episode is about a tragic and horrifying crime involving an amateur horror filmmaker who was on a mission to produce his first full-length horror movie at all costs. The crime took place near the Appalachian Mountains, and while we normally would have Googled this city, this week we decided to do something different, because why not? This is Moms and Murder, and you guys know that we do all kinds of random things here. Since we are off next week to celebrate Thanksgiving with our families, we thought this week it would be fun to change things up a little bit and do a little segment of we googled this holiday. And this is actually, isn't this the second time we've done we googled this holiday? I've gotten lazy twice on two yeah. different holiday <laughs> weeks. So <laughs> we can expect this theme to continue now into all of the other holidays that there are ever. Yeah, were.
1: <laughs> let me tell you, Arbor Day next year is going to be lit. So um, <laughs> So this is not going to be your typical Googled anything. It's not going to be the stuff you learn in school about Thanksgiving or history books or wherever you learned about history or learned about Thanksgiving. This is just the fun, silly things. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the TV dinners that you've grown up eating Maybe by accident, maybe on purpose, but they were actually created by accident. Back in 1953, one of the employees who worked at Swanson, who they sell like all kinds of stuff. I don't even know all the things they sell. But this person screwed up. Yeah, they... Yeah, you're right. I had a, <laughs> my sister's friend's dad worked at Swanson. And I was like, that is the coolest job in the entire world. You must get so much <laughs> free food. She's like, I mean, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, so this guy screws up, and he accidentally orders two hundred and sixty tons of turkeys. So that's kind of a big snafu there. So they have so much turkey on their hands and they're not sure what to do. And so this one salesman by the name of Jerry Thomas has this idea. And so he thought of the prepared foods that are served on airplanes during that time and use it sort of as a blueprint. And so decided to use all that turkey they had and put it to good use. So they ended up taking 5,000 aluminum trays and filling them with turkey and gravy and peas and sweet potatoes. And it became the first TV dinners that we know of today. And it was just the price of 98 cents a piece. That's a happy accident, right? I like that. Yeah. So Mandy, who has, <laughs> who has one job and takes over 100,000 calls each season? If you guessed, which you didn't, nobody guessed, if you guessed Lindsay Lohan's publicist after a night out in Mykonos, you'd be wrong. But if you guessed the Butterball, these are very like recent things that I'm referring to, but if you guessed the Butterball turkey talk line, you'd be correct. And also you probably cheated. Butterball realizes that most of us only make turkeys once a year, and it's not really the easiest thing to make if you're not, you know, making it on a pretty consistent basis. So they are here to help you. And if the last thing you want to do is call someone and ask them an, an embarrassing turkey related question, there's also a 24-hour text message line that you can contact, which I love this idea that they're like, guys, oh. this is our time. Everyone's going to screw this up. Get ready. And just like, I just picture somebody like sweating and somebody putting like a, a cold rag on their forehead while they're answering oh <laughs> the same freaking <laughs> question about turkeys. <laughs> like, no, it's in the oven, not the not the microwave. So anyway, moving on from there, Mandy, did you know the song Jingle Bells was actually a Thanksgiving song originally? So back in 1857, yeah, back in 1857, it went by the name One Horse Open Sleigh, and the composer James Pierpont wrote it with the intention of giving people this Thanksgiving song. But around Christmas, it had become so popular that by two years later in 1859, he said, forget it, you guys take your stupid bells and change the name to Jingle Bells. And that left Adam Zandler completely open to write the one Thanksgiving song we even have now. So blame yourselves on that one. Although I do love the Thanksgiving song. It's such a fun one. That one's full of references that are very, very dated. Last thing, Mandy. I'm almost out of here. Well, I'm still going to be here. Um, if, <laughs> is there anything you'd ever write someone to for 17 years? Like requesting. I mean, there's some serious things, but like silly things? For me, there aren't. But... There, it was a woman named Sarah Josephina Hale or Sarah Hale is what I'm going to call her because I think I copied her name in wrong. And she wrote the government for 17 years wanting to have Thanksgiving looked at it as an official holiday. And so for 17 years, she wrote and petitioned the government to acknowledge the holiday and Sarah was not a quitter. Um, we know this because she actually was the person, I hope this any of this makes sense, who wrote the OG Baby Shark song, Sarah was actually the writer of Mary Had a Little Lamb. And she's the no person way. responsible- Yeah, for pushing it forward to have Thanksgiving recognized as a holiday. So-
0: Wow. Love her, hate
1: her. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting um, an interesting tidbit. Again, I Googled these things once. So this could be on a page called fraud, frauds, and more frauds, and I wouldn't know. And I'm taking it all as facts. So Mandy- <laughs> We'll get right back into the story, because I don't know what I just did there. (laughs) All
0: right. So when you think low-budget horror film, the most popular one that comes to most people's minds is the 1999 film The Blair Witch Project. Most of our listeners have probably heard of or even seen that movie, but some of the younger listeners may not know about that movie. Melissa, I don't know what your knowledge is of the Blair Witch Project or how old you were when it came out. I didn't do the math on that, so I actually don't know. But I remember being really scared of that movie because I was I was relatively young when the Blair Witch Project came Mm. out. And it was scary. But that was before I got really snooty about my horror films. And that was back when I actually was watching low budget films.
1: (laughs) I remember changing the channel on the commercials, if that tells you anything about how terrified I was. And I was at least driving a car at that point. So <laughs> I was old enough not to be scared of that, but I was terrified. That was a terrifying. I don't want to see somebody snot falling out of their head in a commercial. Right. <laughs> that <disgusting. laughs> was like a scary commercial. Yeah. Yeah, right. exactly.
0: So the Blair Witch Project was a low budget supernatural horror movie with an allegedly high scare factor because it was supposedly completely created from footage from actual events. Spoiler alert, it was not actual events. The film is presented in this documentary style, though, and it's supposed to be entirely made up of this real camera footage. That was recovered a year after three hikers disappeared in the Black Hills in Maryland while they were there investigating a local legend about the Blair Witch. The footage shows the journey of these hikers and what happened to them on their quest, but it creatively leaves enough to the imagination to make it really, really creepy and scary. So this concept of using the found footage technique in a scary movie ended up becoming really popular and other movies were successfully produced using the same technique. And this is the movies, um, the movies I'm thinking of and talking about are like the paranormal activity types of movies where everything, the whole movie is from the perspective of a video camera or of some kind. And it's meant to make you believe that these are real events and that this is real recorded video footage. So the original budget for the Blair Witch Project was between thirty dollars and $60,000, but it ended up costing between $200,000 and $750,000. That's quite a big range after all the post-production stuff. And just hearing that number that that's how much that movie costs, it was so crazy to me to think of how expensive it really is to even make what I consider a crappy movie, which is the Blair Witch Project. But oh my gosh, $750,000 to make a movie that's like not even Hollywood. Like, forget it. I'm out of here. I would never be able to make it as a movie producer. That's crazy. But the people at the Sundance Film Festival disagreed with my opinion and they actually loved it. Artesian Entertainment bought the distribution rights to the movie for $1.1 million and really the rest is history. The Blair Witch Project is considered one of the most successful indie films of all time. Although that is not the way that it usually goes with independent films, it did prove that it can be done and that it is fully possible to get a big break with a low-budget film project. And that's exactly what 25-year-old Blaine Norris was hoping for. Blaine
1: Norris was never the popular kid growing up. He was what some would label as your typical nerd, and his favorite things were playing role-play video games such as Dungeons and & Dragons and watching a lot of horror movies. He considered himself to be a horror movie geek. Blaine did really well in school, and he was an honors student who played in the marching band, while he also worked part-time at McDonald's in high school. He went on to attend Millersville University in Central Pennsylvania. But it was his love of horror films that eventually became the catalyst to his ultimate dream. He hoped to one day produce his own horror movie, and he was eager to make it a reality as soon as possible. Blaine worked as a computer technician for Harrisburg Insurance Company, which is a large healthcare provider in Pennsylvania. It paid the bills, but Blaine had a young family to worry about. He was married to a young woman named Wendy, and they had recently welcomed a son named Mason. In Blaine's mind, there was no better time to pursue his goal and to try to make his dream of producing a big-time horror movie a reality. Lane had already spent quite a bit of time thinking about exactly what he wanted the movie to be like. From the sounds of it, it sounds a lot like a Blair Witch type project sort of thing. It kind of seemed like maybe he was riding those coattails and hoping for more success with a similar idea of movie. That movie was so popular, whether you saw it or not, at that time you knew what that movie was. So his idea was to make a slasher movie about a group of hikers in the Appalachian Mountains who get murdered one by one by a serial killer in the woods, whose name was Samuel Toon. Blaine himself was an experienced backpacker and had plenty of outdoor experience thanks to the Eagle Scouts. He was on a backpacking trip on the Appalachian Trail when he found the location that he wanted to shoot his movie at. He had it all planned out and already had a title for the film and everything. It was going to be called Through Hike, and in his own words, it had, quote, all the ingredients for a truly scary movie. It's a ghost story. People may not believe in ghosts, but they usually totally don't disbelieve in them either. Whether you can tease someone with the unknown, you can scare them. And that's what horror movies are about, end quote. Well, I guess we should have just referred to his meaning of what a horror movie was since it's right. <laughs> at <in> the beginning. <laughs> so for Blaine, everything was riding on this opportunity to create a successful indie film even though he really had no discernible experience as a movie director. He was very meticulous and thorough when it came to every aspect of the production, and although he needed to keep the cost as low as possible, he did want someone who could partner with him to help him pull off making this
0: movie. And that's where Blaine's co-worker Brian Trimble comes in. Brian Trimble also worked in IT for Harrisburg Insurance Company, which is where he first met Blaine. Brian was typically a pretty introverted guy, but he had a lot of interests in common with Blaine, so they became friends outside of work as well. Brian was 28 years old and had somewhat recently been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, so he definitely needed a friend as the news of this illness was quite an upsetting blow to him. Brian learned of his diagnosis for the first time when he was just 24 years old. At the time, he was working at a daycare center at the New Cumberland Army Depot, and he met the woman of his dreams, Randy, there. She had also applied for the same job, and both of them were hired. Before long, they were dating, and the relationship blossomed really quickly. They were, as people who knew them said, madly in love, and everyone around them said that they were really perfect for each other, and they were exactly the type of people that each of the families hoped the other one would find. The only thing that really made any sense for this couple was for them to get married. But shortly before they were set to tie the knot, Randy began noticing some unusual things about her soon-to-be husband. She was actually studying to become a speech pathologist, and she recognized some worrisome signs in the way that Brian was speaking, and she encouraged him to seek a doctor's opinion. Unfortunately, Randy's concerns were not unfounded and Brian received the devastating news that he had the early signs of MS. Randy and Brian were both brokenhearted, and questions swirled about the future that they would have together in light of this diagnosis. Randy's mom actually sat down with her and asked her if she was sure that she wanted to go through with the marriage, and she tried to realistically prepare her daughter for what could be in store for them. Brian could eventually be wheelchair-bound or unable to have children, and he would have different needs and requirements than somebody without multiple sclerosis. But Randy told her mom that she was absolutely sure that she wanted to stay with Brian no matter what. She was deeply in love with him, and she, she told her mom and her friends and family that she would never leave him just because he was sick, and they were going to get through this, and she was going to stick by his side and be his supporter. And we are going to get into so many more details of this case after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
1: Raise your hand if you hate feet. Okay, so podcasts are an audio medium, so I'm just going to assume everyone out there in Moms and Murderland just raise their hands. My point is this, feet are the worst and they should be covered up. And the best way to do that is with Bombas. I'm a certified Bombas hoarder and wear them literally every day of my life, including when I go to
0: sleep because they are so comfortable that sometimes I even forget I have them on. Bombas has really thought of everything when it comes to making the perfect socks. There's none of those annoying toe seams that seem to travel around in your shoe. Plus the heels in Bombas are made with a little extra cushion plus arch support. Bombas are not only ridiculously comfortable, they have all different styles and designs and are high quality socks, so they will last much longer than all the other socks in your drawer.
1: We've had our bombas for over a year now, and mine are still in amazing condition, even though I really make them work for me around the clock. I've bought several more pairs of bombas because not only are they the best socks I've ever owned, but I can feel great about my purchase. For every pair of Bombas you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. Bomba has now donated over 34 million pairs of socks and counting through their nationwide network of 3,000 plus giving partners. Bombas makes the perfect gift for everyone on your list, and it's something people will actually enjoy, unlike the off-brand coffee your mom sends to your coffee snob of a husband every year that he has and never will consume.
0: Give a pair when you buy a pair, and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com momsandmurder That's dot com slash momsandmurder for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash momsandmurder. It's the happiest time of the year, but it's also the busiest. And the last thing I want to do is think about what's for dinner. Thanks to HelloFresh, I don't have to think, which is great because I really don't even think I can do that at this point. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and it's no wonder since HelloFresh takes the stress out of meal planning and grocery store trips so you can actually enjoy cooking and get a delicious meal on the table in about 30 minutes.
1: We are HelloFresh enthusiasts at my house. Anytime our new box shows up, we are so excited to pull everything out and pick out that evening's meal without ever having to check to see if we have the ingredients. Since HelloFresh delivers fresh, high quality, and my personal favorite, pre-portioned ingredients so you can make meals that are delicious and nutritious. Last week, we had the pork sausage over autumn pilaf, drizzled with a creamy lemon pepper sauce. It's one of those meals where everyone was completely silent, but in a good way, because we're all too busy stuffing our faces with another amazing HelloFresh meal.
0: And we love that HelloFresh isn't just committed to amazing meals for our families, but they are committed to donating to those in need. So far in 2020, they've donated three and a half million meals, and you can help too with HelloFresh's Beyond the Box program. With just a few clicks in the app, you're able to give nutritious meals to those experiencing food insecurity. Go to
1: HelloFresh.com slash MomsAndMurder90 and use code MomsAndMurder90 to get $90 off including free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash MomsAndMurder90 and use code MomsAndMurder90 to get $90 off including free shipping. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Brian Trimble and his loving fiance, Randy. The couple had recently learned that Brian was showing early signs of multiple sclerosis shortly before they were set to be married. Randy was so devoted to Brian and there was really no question in her mind that she was going to go through with the marriage and support Brian no matter what happened in the years to come. On September 9th, 2000, the couple got married. It was a very happy day for both them and their families. Video footage of the wedding showed just how in love this couple was, and Brian delivered a heartfelt message to his new wife, thanking her for supporting him and for sticking by his side. After the wedding, life was really great for Brian and Randy. Randy bought a house just a few blocks away from where her mom lived, and they lived a really comfortable life in Pennsylvania. As a couple, they were just very happy. Randy got her dream job at Hershey Medical Center just a few years after graduating college, and Brian was working his way up on the ladder at his job. Before long, the couple began to discuss starting a family. It's hard to believe that either of them was involved in a tragedy less than three years later, or that the story really all started when Brian met Blaine Norris at work and befriended this quirky
0: horror movie fanatic, When Brian learned that Blaine was into movies, they instantly bonded over what turned out to be a common interest between them. Brian was also a big movie buff, and he thought it was really cool and awesome that Blaine had this plan and this dream to produce a full-length movie and to make it to Hollywood. The more Brian learned about the project, the more excited he became to help his new friend work on it, but it became clear that Blaine was missing some key elements to pulling off this dream. One of the things he was missing was a crew of any kind, and he had no equipment with which to film this movie. Since Brian was so into the idea of helping Blaine, he offered himself up as the cameraman because he actually had some camera equipment and he knew how to use it, and he was really excited to have this new hobby to focus his attention on, so all of this was perfect for him. The two men proceeded with their plan, and at first things were going really, really well. An investor had even agreed to put up $18,000 to get things going. Blaine took Brian to the spot in the mountains where he wanted to film the movie, and then three months later, they were preparing to hold auditions. Most of the actors who were cast in this film were complete amateurs, and for many of them, this was their first film role, but they were also excited to be part of the movie and hoped that it would help launch their own careers. But there was one major problem with all of this. Neither Blaine nor Brian had any real experience, and their lack of know-how soon became an issue. Brian was never there with the camera during the auditions or the rehearsals, which the actors even thought was strange. One of the actors said, quote, I mean, you can't block a scene without the director of photography. It's going to be based on lighting and all that, you know. Naturally, you need the camera to be there, so... Basically, these actors, even though they're amateurs, like even they know enough to be like, something is not right about the production of this particular movie. Like we're not doing anything like we were taught or like how you would actually film a movie. But Brian did manage to shoot some publicity headshots of these actors and they were actually pretty terrible. In fact, they were so bad and unprofessional looking that the investor who had originally put $18,000 into the project actually got scared off and took his money back when Blaine refused to fire Brian and hire a real cameraman. After all the planning and thought that had gone into this movie, Blaine was not going to give up that easily, and he was committed to figuring out a way to make it work and to get his film into production.
1: Since Brian had agreed to come on as a partner to Blaine, even though this movie was fully Blaine's brainchild, Blaine felt that Brian had partial responsibility in securing the proper funding for the movie. At this stage, Blaine was all in and would stop at nothing to make his dream a reality. And they're not talking a few dollars, they're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. And I hate to tell everyone out there, but if the microphone that Mandy and I used for our first episode, had cost more than $100, moms and (laughs) Murder would not even be a thing. (laughs) I mean, I think it was 45. So so they're like talking thousands of dollars and this is a new friend that you're getting excited for your vision and now you're like, by the way, you've got to contribute to this thing. That's a lot of
0: pressure. Oh my gosh. And I've known you. I just can't even imagine. Like, I have known you for years, and I would never ask you for $20,000, like for any reason. Like, no. I just can't even think. Not of, like saying I wouldn't I do it. Think. I don't have I mean, it. I wouldn't, exactly. <laughs> I know. But can you imagine asking your friend or even like insinuating that your friend? gives you $20,000. That's just so just out there to me that you would ever expect that your friend would do that. That's just really, that's just a very high expectation of a friend.
1: (laughs) Mandy, anytime you and I have even gotten each other Diet Cokes, like, it's like the next time I see you, I'm like, I got to get her a Diet Coke. She got me one last time. I couldn't buy you 20000 Diet Cokes. That's just not going to (laughs) happen. But this is just so much pressure. And then to have all that money taken away that you were like banking on, really, that is just upped it so much more. It'd be different if you started with zero, but you just had that money and you no longer have it. So that's got to put so much pressure on this entire thing. So when Blaine finds out that this investor had backed out, it was a total nightmare situation. He already has the cast, the location, and he even has a script. In other words, really everything was ready to roll except for the fact that they now had no budget to work with. Brian had also invested a lot of his time and energy into helping Blaine and he had become really personally invested in seeing it through. And I see how at this point that you'd be like, no, I've spent every weekend working on this and after hours and planning it like you want to work, you want it to work at this point. And so as we mentioned earlier, though, Brian had been diagnosed with the early stages of MS and that made the situation a little bit different. Brian's wife, Randy, was constantly worried about him and his health. She was really protective of him and she kept a watchful eye over everything her new husband was doing. Sometimes this would come off as an annoyance to Brian who was obviously an adult and capable of making his own decisions, but at least he had a wife who cared enough about him to worry at all. So if you aren't familiar with MS or what it can do to the body, the Mayo Clinic defines it as, quote, a potentially disabling disease of the brain and spinal cord. In MS, the immune system attacks a protective sheath that covers nerve fibers and causes communication between your brain and the rest of your body. Eventually, the disease can cause permanent damage or deterioration of the nerves, end quote. Most commonly, people with MS will have periods of relapse and remitting, and during the flare up, the patient will experience new or worsening symptoms for a while and then enter a period of relapse that can last between months and years. It's usually a slow-progressing disease that worsens over 10 to 20 years after diagnosis. So Randy, you know, she was really the one that basically got him help in the first place. She was the one that noticed these signs, so she's very concerned about Brian and all these big ideas and adventures that he's wanting to go on. So for one thing, her husband has been spending a lot of time with this new friend, Blaine, and has become really obsessed with helping produce this low-budget movie. When Brian told Randy that he wanted to travel off into the Appalachian Mountains for a week for filming, she was immediately put off by this idea. And she was really honest with Brian, and she felt that it really wasn't a good idea for him and his condition to be hiking
0: in the mountains and camping out for a week away from civilization. But it wasn't just the traveling and the time out in the wilderness that Randy was against. When Blaine and Brian found out that their funding had been pulled, Brian came up with this idea of his own, and he remembered that his wife, Randy, had been saving a lot of money. She was trying to build up what she called her nest egg so that she and Brian could possibly start a family and live comfortably with no concerns about finances. Over the course of their marriage, Randy had managed to sock away about $20,000 thanks to her frugal spending habits and her careful planning. Even though that money had been saved up almost entirely by Randy herself and there was already a plan in place for that money, Brian decided that it would be okay and appropriate to tell Blaine that he and Randy had all of this money in the bank and he said that he would ask Randy if they could use the money to get the movie going. The idea, of course, was that if this movie was successful, they would make the money back and then some, so it would all be fine. The two men thought that this was really a fantastic plan. But when Brian approached Randy with this, she was much less excited. Randy understandably told her husband no. And she said he absolutely could not use the money that she saved for their family to help produce a movie that wasn't even Brian's idea in the first place. As a wife, I would absolutely say no as well to that. That does not seem like an unreasonable thing to just say no. Furthermore, she became so upset by the notion that she even told Brian that she didn't approve of any of this at all. And not only was she not going to give them any money, but she also didn't want Brian going off to live in the woods for a week to film the movie, and she really just didn't want him to have his hand in it anymore at all. And this really became a turning point for the once very happy couple.
1: When Brian went back to Blaine and broke the news that he wouldn't be able to put up this money, Blaine was pretty mad. Apparently, he'd put all his eggs in this one basket and believed that at this point, he had some kind of right to Randy and Brian's personal savings. To make matters worse, now Brian was backing out of the whole thing at the last minute. Randy had gotten her way and convinced Brian not to be the cameraman and to go into the mountains for as long as the filming would take. At this late stage in the process, this was a pretty catastrophic hit for Blaine's movie. But at this point, Blaine was desperate to make it happen and his marriage even depended on it. He hadn't been getting along with his wife, Wendy, and she was on the verge of taking their baby and leaving him. She was fed up with all the movie stuff and it didn't help matters when Brian backed out of the project. Blaine wanted to go forward with the movie, so he spent his own money and rang up a lot of debt to get the filming underway. Unfortunately, now that Blaine was out on his own, he had to take on the role of not only producing and directing the movie, but also filming. It was pretty much the disaster that you would expect. In August of 2002, the actors and small crew traveled to the spot in the mountains that Blaine had picked to film the movie. From day one, scene one, there was one problem after another, and Blaine had to troubleshoot them all. These setbacks put the entire schedule behind, and that was really just the start of it. Since they were out in a remote area of the forest, there were major costs involved in transforming The Great Outdoors into a movie set, and these costs maxed out Blaine's credit and put him into debt. But still he persisted through the various problems and continued working on trying to
0: film this movie. Back at the Trimble home, things really weren't going very well for Randy and Brian. Just a few years earlier, they seemed so happy and excited about the future and starting a family and a life while navigating Brian's multiple sclerosis diagnosis together. Now the couple was constantly bickering and generally just not enjoying being together. Much of the contention was coming from Brian, who was apparently getting tired of the way that his life was. His diagnosis was really starting to get him down, and he was tired of constantly living under Randy's thumb. And he really felt that this was not the life that he envisioned when they first got married. They had a lot of fights and their relationship became strained to the point that they actually sought marital counseling. While Brian was seemingly unhappy with every aspect of his life, Randy was still devoted to her husband and she was willing to do whatever it took to get their marriage back on track. Randy actually knew what it was like to struggle and to feel alone through dark times. While Randy was growing up, her father was very abusive towards her and her mom. He had been abusing her mom since they first got married, both physically and mentally. And the abuse continued for seven years, all throughout Randy's very young and formative years. And then one day, Randy's mom found the courage to leave the abusive relationship because she decided that once and for all, she did not want to expose her daughter to that environment anymore. From that point on, Randy's mom did everything she could to raise her as a single parent so that Randy would have all the opportunities in the world. The mother and daughter formed a close bond during that time, and they remained that way when Randy became an adult. When she did become an adult, she was the type of person that anybody would want to know. She had a passion for helping others and pursued a degree in speech pathology at Bloomsburg University. Her dream was to work with the elderly, but her mom actually convinced her to try working with kids first to see if she liked it. And that's when she applied for the job at the daycare center where she first met Brian. Brandy had always been a giver and a caretaker who loved helping others, so it was really nothing out of character or out of the ordinary for her to want to fight to save her struggling marriage to Brian. But Brian was really resistant to her efforts, and he continued to feel like she was overpowering and really just trying to control his life. And we're going to get into the rest of the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
1: We've officially hit that time of year again, the time where we bust out our stretchy pants and eat all the desserts but if I'm being honest, I've been in mind for much of the year. This year though, don't let the holidays stop you from reaching your goals. Let Noom
0: help you get there, all while still enjoying the holidays. And you can still enjoy all these food-heavy holidays because Noom isn't a diet. It's a healthy and easy to stick to way of life. I love that Noom doesn't label food as good, bad, or off-limits. Noom knows I'm going to want a piece of pie at Thanksgiving, and that's okay, Noom even knows there's a chance I might eat half the pie, and that's also okay. With the support of my personal goal specialist and Noom community, when I come out of my food coma, I'll be ready to dust off those pie crumbs and keep moving forward. Noom has become a way of life for me. It's so easy to use, I can easily
1: track my eating habits and visualize portion sizes and even look at calorie density at a glance. When we've talked about Noom in the past, I've mentioned that I don't have a magic number I want to weigh, and I still really feel that way. I'm working on being the healthiest me I can be, and Noom is helping me do that. You
0: don't have to change it all in one day. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom dot com slash moms to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. On the list of things I hate, bra shopping is near the top.
1: Number three is the dentist. Number two is listening to my voice on the podcast. And bra shopping is probably number one. But now, thanks to 3rd Love, I can at least avoid that last one. 3rd Love is a way to buy your bras. And now, thanks to the quality and convenience of 3rd Love, they are the only
0: bras I own. Do what we did and take the quick 3rd Love Online Fit Finder quiz on their website to find the size and styles that are perfect just for you. When I took the quiz, I just answered a few simple questions about the bra I was currently wearing, like how it fit, and within about 60 seconds, 3rd Love told me my correct size and gave me options for different styles and matched me to my new favorite bra. And they want to help you too. And 3rd Love stands behind their products,
1: so if you don't love your new bra, which you will, you have 60 days to return it. And there's no hassle, no jumping through hoops, because 3rd Love makes returns and exchanges free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering our listeners 10% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com murder for 10% off today. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were just talking about Randy Trimble and her relationship with her husband, Brian. Brian, who, as we said before, was in the early stages of MS and was experiencing a tough time coping with the way his life was really going. Brian had met this new friend at work who was an aspiring horror filmmaker, and they hit it off because Brian was also a big movie buff. The two began to make plans to produce a full-length horror movie together, but at the last minute, they needed to pull together a lot of funding, and when Brian's wife, Randy, said they couldn't use her savings to produce the money, things really started to go really sour between her and Brian. Brian and Blaine sort of had a falling out when the money thing fell through, and Brian backed away from becoming the official videographer, so they weren't in touch with each other during the time that Blaine was out in the woods filming this movie. Since Brian didn't know any better, he assumed that things were really just going perfectly for Blaine, and he was out there just living his dream, and Brian was, in his own opinion, trapped at home in a life he hated. Little did he know, though, that Blaine was having problems of his own not just with the many aspects of the movie production, but also problems with his wife, Wendy. As it turned out, Blaine had become so desperate for money to fund this project that he actually put his own home, where his wife and young son also lived, on the market to get money. So everything for Blaine was riding on the success of this film, and Wendy pretty much had one foot out the door and really wanted nothing to do with any of it. A few days into filming, even the actors themselves were wondering what the heck they were doing there. Blaine had literally led them into the wilderness, where there were all kinds of mutant-looking bugs and darkness and wildlife, and they just went right along with it. Everyone was ready to get the scenes filmed and just get out of there. Finally, after several days of long filming sessions, including ones that lasted well into the early hours of the next morning, the filming of this movie came to an end. Blaine was riding high on his accomplishment and was so happy with how things went, but it was too late for his relationship with Wendy. She had packed up their son and left, leaving Blaine alone and in severe debt thanks to this movie. In his desperation and loneliness, he reached back out to Brian looking for a friend, and that's when things really took a
0: terrifying turn. When Blaine showed back up in Brian's life, it reminded Brian about how unhappy he felt and how jealous he was that Blaine was getting to be out there living out his dream. The more they talked, the more Brian opened up to Blaine about how things were going at home with Randy. He spoke often about how miserable he was and how controlling he thought she was. According to him, Randy never let him do anything and wouldn't even give him lunch money. After hearing all this for months, Blaine offered to do something absolutely heinous. He offered to kill Randy to solve both of their problems. The way Blaine saw it, his movie had potential. If only he could get enough money to finish the production and get it out there for the world to see. He also had a very dark side to him, and he allegedly told Brian that he would love to know what it was like to kill somebody for real. After months of talking and planning, the two men decided what they were going to do about it all. They were going to work together to murder Randy so that Brian could collect her insurance money and the money in savings. And he agreed to give Blaine the $20,000 he needed if he was the one to actually kill his wife. My gosh. Yes, it's just Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine the planning of this. And especially in this case, they actually planned this for like, I think it was seven months total that they oh first gosh. started talking about it to the time that that this story comes to an end. But yeah, it was just really, really crazy reading about this one. And just so sad because I'm like, oh my gosh, I just can't imagine and how much Randy loved her husband and just wanted nothing more than yeah. to be there for him. Um, and then he was just so caught up in his you know, his negative emotions and feelings that he really thought that this was a a good idea. Right. So in this scenario, Brian thought that both him and Blaine would win whatever they thought winning was, but Blaine would get the money for the movie. And then Brian would get to be out from under his wife and her watchful eye. And, you know, she wouldn't be there anymore to control him. Once they decided that this was their plan, they started working out all the details to pull it off without getting caught. Meanwhile, Brian spent the holidays with Randy and her family, and nobody had any idea that there was anything wrong, and it's definitely not that he was actively planning her murder, or that that would be the last Christmas that they would spend with Randy. At 8.29 in the evening on
1: January 10th, 2003, a 911 call came in about an unconscious and possibly deceased woman inside the garage of a home. It was Brian Trimble on the other end of the phone, crying hysterically and telling the dispatcher that he had just returned home to find that something was wrong with his wife. When he was asked if she was breathing, Brian said no. Minutes later, first responders arrived at the devastating scene. Randy Trimble, who was just 28 years old at the time, was found face down in her garage, dead from an apparent strangulation and stabbing. The pathologist later found a total of 27 stab wounds on Randy's body, which is obviously extremely excessive. When investigators turned to Brian for answers and clues, they came up pretty empty-handed. Brian appeared to be in shock over his wife's death, and he told officers that he had just been out for dinner with a friend and that he found Randy like that when he arrived back home. Inside the house, there looked to have been some activity where someone had rummaged through the couple's belongings, but nothing was found to be missing. From day one, there were skeptical detectives who believed the crime scene looked staged, but whenever investigators looked into Brian's alibi, they learned that it was true. He had gone out that evening with a friend, and he wasn't at home at the time his wife was killed. His presence at the restaurant was confirmed by receipts, the waitress, and the friend he was there with. The crime scene didn't offer any clues either. There was no murder weapon, no fingerprints, and no real leads to go on. Even though Brian had a pretty airtight alibi— The experienced detectives on the case couldn't shake the feeling that he still had something to do
0: with the death of his wife. They just had to figure out where the connection was. On January 27th, Brian was asked to return to the crime scene to speak with detectives on camera about what happened that night, and they also wanted to film him reenacting his movements from the time he arrived home to the time that he dialed 911. They asked what he was thinking about as he arrived home that night, and he said that, honestly his thought was that randy was going to be mad that he was out later into the evening when he got to his door he said he realized that it was already unlocked which was unusual and then he found randy in the garage he said that he knew she was dead right away so he did not touch her in a later telling of these events brian tripped up and changed his story He told the detectives that he called out to Randy and got no answer, so he gave her a nudge to see if she would move and that he knelt down and touched her. This was a different story than what he had given before, so the police actually turned their suspicion back on him and started to dig deeper. A complete forensic search of Brian's computer was conducted. Investigators found pieces of a book on there titled How to Commit a Murder and in interviews with those who knew or worked with Brian and Blaine, they learned some troubling details. One coworker told the detectives that shortly before the holidays, Brian was going around telling people in the office that he was getting a divorce. But just a few weeks later, he had completely changed his tune and said that now he and his wife, Randy, were going to try to work things out. This coworker knew about the relationship between Brian and Blaine and she even told the officers that she had a suspicion that Blaine had something to do with the murder as well. And not just that, but she believed that he may have been the one who actually murdered Randy. This allegation was shocking to anybody who actually knew Blaine. He was always a really quirky guy, even with a dark side some could say, but he was never violent or actually scary. But the investigators thought that they could really be onto something with this theory. So they wiretapped both Blaine and Brian's phones and listened to their conversations for several hours a day for several weeks.
1: Finally, in May of 2003, police had gathered enough evidence that they believed proved that the two men plotted to murder Randy Trimble. Police brought Brian in for questioning once again, only this time they told him they had enough evidence to charge him with murder, and they were going to give him a one-time offer to confess in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. And with that, the jig was up. Brian confessed to his role in the murder of four and a half hours and what amounted to 81 pages of confession. He told the officers everything about how he felt trapped in his marriage and in his life, and he was jealous of Blaine getting to essentially do what he wanted and chase his dreams. He said that Blaine needed this money for his movie, and he agreed to kill Randy for $20,000, which is going to be paid to him as soon as Brian collected on Randy's $100,000 life insurance policy. According to Brian, he didn't want to put Randy through the pain of a divorce, so he decided that having her killed was his best option. I hate when people say that. It makes me so mad. I know. I don't understand that. Like anyone's gonna say, Would you like to be murdered or divorce me? I think every time you know what the answer is gonna be. Nobody wants to go through right. the divorce, but my gosh, don't don't pretend that you're doing like a service to somebody for choosing that for them. That's just oh makes me so mad. So the two of them discussed the plan in detail and had it planned out almost like it was a real life movie plot. And they believed that they had really thought of everything and would easily get away with the murder. The plan was for Brian to schedule a dinner with a friend during the time that Blaine was going to be at his house murdering Randy so that he could have a proven alibi. On the night of January 10th, the plan went into action. Brian went out for dinner while Blaine waited at the couple's house for Randy to get home from work. When she arrived, that's when Blaine attacked her. First, he tried strangling Randy with an extension cord, but he later told police that he was caught off guard by how much of a fight Randy put up. So he then resorted to his second plan, which was to use a knife. He stabbed Randy 27 times during this attack.
0: After Brian confessed, police started putting together a case against Blaine, but they didn't arrest him immediately. They wanted to gather more information to ensure that their case was actually going to stick. So they worked quietly behind the scenes while Blaine worked on editing his movie, completely unaware that Brian had just outed both of them. In a search warrant that was eventually carried out on Blaine's apartment, investigators found a book about forensics with highlighted material about hiding forensic evidence. They also found guns, rifles, and hunting knives, but they didn't find anything that looked like it matched the description of the knife that was used to kill Randy. Inside Blaine's car, they found receipts that showed that Blaine had purchased a box of surgical gloves, work gloves, a hooded sweatshirt, and pants. And when they asked the store manager to look into whether or not anything else was purchased with the same credit card, they found out that Blaine had also purchased a six inch fillet knife. That was the exact type of knife that the medical examiner believed was used to stab Randy Trimble to death. After a little detective work, they also realized that Blaine's alibi for the night of the murder didn't really hold any water. At first, one of Blaine's friends told the police that he actually saw Blaine outside of his apartment and even spoke with him at the exact time that Randy was believed to have been killed. So, of course, that would mean that Blaine couldn't have been the one to do it. But when police dug into it, they realized that this friend who told them this must have had his times mixed up, and he was mistaken by an entire hour. So when the friend was telling the police that he saw Blaine at 730 that night, He really meant that it was 8.30, which, of course, changes everything for Blaine's alibi. Yeah, so he was then arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Blaine maintained his innocence in the wake of his arrest and hired a known attorney to represent him in his death penalty case. But when he was offered a plea deal, which was to confess in exchange for life but not the death sentence, Blaine eventually caved and he admitted to the crime. At some point in the course of his interviews and his testimony, Blaine said that murdering Randy wasn't easy, and it did not happen like it does in the movies. He said that he wasn't prepared for how much she fought back, and he actually considered abandoning the plan to kill her and running away instead, but he said that at that point, He had already gone so far and he was in too deep and he felt that he had to go through with what he started. That's another thing that we hear a lot in crime cases where they say they considered not going all the way through with the killing. But then they felt like they had to because whatever, they're going to go to jail anyway or, you know, the person is already really hurt. And so they decide to still go through with murder. Oh my gosh, I don't understand that mentality. I feel like if you as a human being have the thought, like, oh my gosh, I'm killing somebody, I can stop this right now. But then you keep doing it, like, that's a different, you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, it's oh, yeah. terrible that you hurt the person, but like, if you actually, if I, I mean, I feel like I have more, obviously not respect, like, you shouldn't be attacking somebody to the point where they're like near death anyway, but like, that says something if you actually can stop yourself from killing the person. You know, you know a moment of clarity. Right. And then you stop. But if you say like, oh, I thought about it, but then I did it anyway. Well, then I'm like, "Okay, like then, you know, I just don't feel sorry for any punishment that comes your way from doing this. Both Brian and Blaine were sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder of Randy Trimble. Her killers are behind bars for life, but the nightmare continues on for Randy's mom, Nancy. They were truly the best of friends with an incredible mother daughter bond, and Nancy just can't fathom how her son in law could have possibly turned on her daughter this way. Since Randy's murder, Nancy has been on a personal mission to educate and help women in abusive relationships and to bring awareness to the issue of domestic violence. She organized an annual fundraiser event, which is a 5K called Randy's Race, to honor her daughter and to raise awareness. As of 2017, Randy's Race had raised over $350,000, and that money was used to support Randy's House of Angels, which is a nonprofit that provides therapeutic programs to children that are victims of domestic violence. Nancy has plans to one day release a book filled with all the things that she has chronicled in her personal journal over the years since Randy's murder. She was quoted as saying, There's a little more of a comfort level now because of how I've adjusted and certainly in how I look at my life now. My perspective on living the rest of my life is different. At first, it was so traumatic. I didn't want to go any further without her. I love saying that Randy was my life and she will always be my life. That's how I wanted it. I feel very, very proud that I was her mom. Oh my gosh, it just makes me so sad whenever I hear moms, you know, um, speaking about their children who were victims of a crime like this. And this one was really, really upsetting and heartbreaking, even though there was so many crazy elements with all the horror movie filmmaking stuff. At the end of the day, this was such a senseless murder and there was absolutely no reason why this, why Randy had to be killed. I mean, I just, it was just so senseless and for absolutely nothing. I mean, this guy had this like crappy movie and you know, I have no patience for that. Like I said, it was probably going to be a terrible movie anyway, no matter how much money they dumped into it. But like, it just makes me so angry that a woman lost her life and all she wanted to do was just be a good wife and a good, you know, start a family with Brian. And yeah, it's just so hard. Like these, these are really hard stories and really heartbreaking because you just can't even make any sense of it. There's no rhyme or reason why she had to be killed like that.
1: Yeah. And hearing Brian kind of say, you know, oh, his life looks so great because he gets to do what he wants to. But really, he's lost, you know, his wife, Wendy, leaves him with their son and stuff like they're both kind of thinking the other one's got something good going on that, you know, uh, Brian has all this money. And then he's thinking Blaine has all this freedom. And in actuality, neither of them really has it. You know what I mean? It's a grass is always right in situation where if either of them were just like, hey, let's look at my life and the things that I can change in my life and what could I do differently? Life would be a lot different. But just, I don't know. I With her being a speech pathologist, some of my favorite people are speech pathologists. I have a cousin who's a wonderful speech pathologist, one of the nicest people in the entire world, Brittany. And uh, my son has a speech pathologist and they're just the best people. I don't know how to explain it. They're just people who want to help. And I'm sure there's a crappy one out there, but they're... It just makes me think of her and like what kind of person she she was and just from what we learned about her, just that she loved her husband so much and, you know, wanted to help him and encouraged him in things he should be encouraged in and maybe, you know, wanted him to take different directions and other things. But really she was just trying to be a good support for him and be there for him. And just it's such a mess that people get tangled up into this and are blind to, you know, they're just blind to everything else and and to go through with something like this. So I don't know. I want to look into the Randys race and um, the charity because that sounds really incredible um to see what her mom is up to cuz that is an amazing way to pay tribute to her daughter.
0: Yes, absolutely. Her mom has done so much. I did link um there's like a website for Randy's House of Angels and there's like a whole Perfect. bio and oh, um, yeah that. and her mom is written on there. So I linked that in the show notes if you want to go and learn more about Randy um and her mom. Her mom has put a lot of information out there about the life that kind of Randy lived as a child and kind of how she grew up and the things that were important to her. So a lot of it is nice to go and read. So if you want to check that out, that link to that will be in the show notes. Wonderful. Okay, Melissa, are we ready to turn the page and go move on to our last thing before we go? Thanksgiving edition? It's Thanksgiving edition.
1: It is Thanksgiving edition. I wonder if we did the same thing. I think we did because we'll text each other our ideas and then sometimes one of us, normally me, um uh, misunderstand and comes up with something different. So you explain to the audience what we're doing and I will just give you the answers that I came up with.
0: Okay, well we're not doing anything too complicated this week. So no. because it's Thanksgiving and we've had this is our third Thanksgiving um here since we've had the podcast. So of course we've already talked about the typical things like what we like to eat and what our favorites are blah 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 blah. blah. So this week this year rather We are going to talk about, um, we're each going to say two things, two food items that appear at Thanksgiving dinner every year that we just don't like. They're our least favorite things. You can keep them. We don't want them. And then we're also going to share two alternative ideas to like not just bring, you know, everyone's like, oh, what should I bring to family Thanksgiving? And it's like you have these the classic options of green bean casserole and macaroni and cheese and, you know, sweet potatoes with melted sugar on top or whatever, marshmallows, um, melted sugar, same thing, you know, but that's what everybody brings. Those are the classic Thanksgiving dishes. So we're also going to, hopefully, if Melissa has any, um, we can say two other dishes that are, Good options. And then maybe that will help somebody also if they want to go Google how to make these things and yeah. they can wow their family and bring something yeah. other than green bean casserole to the table this year. Uh, if we get it organized, we will put the links for those in
1: the show notes because I know where mine are. I'm sure you have some kind of random recipe or you probably have originals. Yeah. If there's if they're not originals or based on something, we'll, we'll put them in there. We'll put in what we have if you like them. If not, just ignore it. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Okay, Melissa. So what... When it comes to, there's so much good food at Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait. It's coming up so fast. I just can't even wait. To be honest with you, I just like eating a giant massive plate of food. But there are things that come around at Thanksgiving that I feel like I could just like definitely leave them alone and not ever have them again. So what are those things for you, Melissa? Oh my gosh.
1: Number one, you mentioned it in your list of staples, green bean casserole. I oh my gosh. a casserole. I looked at the ingredients because I was like maybe there's an ingredient that I'm missing and it's wonderful on the Campbell's website. A can of cream of mushroom soup, cream of some other cream of mushroom soup thing, uh, milk, black pepper, green beans, and fried onions. Really, you can find happiness in those things. That doesn't make any sense to me. Don't no. Throw me well, you would never. Vegetable.
0: You would never make green bean casserole according to the website for Campbell's soup. Obviously, I went with classic. I went with oh my classic. Gosh, no, I make. I, I love green bean casserole, but I also oh. make mine delicious, and it doesn't taste like whatever you just said, which was not delicious. But I know a lot of people do make it like that, so I can understand why you would not. That would not be your favorite thing. I respect you. I respect your family, and I deny that that's a good option. <laughs> if you
1: made it for me, I would pretend I had a stomach illness and just I would make myself throw oh. up, so I wouldn't <laughs> have to eat
0: that. <laughs> Mandy, what's your first one? So my first, uh, my, my first one that I don't like, I I really don't like the sweet potatoes with melted sugar. Like I said, it's just too much for me. I feel like there's no point. And like, I feel like it's a lie. like it's supposed to be healthy. Like it's a sweet potato, but then it's like totally not because it's just covered with marshmallows and brown sugar and like delicious obviously, but like I don't know. If I'm going to eat marshmallows and brown sugar, like, I, just give me a s'more. Just take me out back and yeah. give me a piece of chocolate and a graham cracker. Like, I don't want to eat that on top of a vegetable. Like, if you're, if I'm going to eat marshmallows, I'm just going to eat marshmallows. Like, I just, I just don't like that dish at all. I never eat it. I never get a spoonful of it. I always leave it there. And I always feel bad because my grandmother usually is the one that makes it. And, like, I feel like a lot she's of people don't eat lady. it because she's so freaking nice. So I will sit there and just eat, like, half a, a sweet potato casserole because – I feel bad. And she's always like, oh, do you want any or do you want to take any of this home with you? I'm like, oh, my gosh, no, I don't want to take it home. Like, I don't know why you still make it. You know that you throw it away are every you year. Doing this? <laughs> uh, all right.
1: My second one is basically yours, but it's with a caveat. Mine is sweet potato casserole without marshmallows. Do not give me sweet potato casserole and don't put marshmallows on it. I want the marshmallows. Uh. Give me give me that it's just the toastiness of it if you do it right it's just like creamy with the little bit of the marshmallows oh it's so good but do not give it to mm. me with cornflakes on it my mom tries to pull that crap on me and it's just not happening I'm not going to eat vegetables sweet potatoes corn- yeah like cornflakes and like brown sugar and butter mixed up so it's like crunchy on top it's- no, I don't like that. I hope my mother hears you talk bad about her. Luckily, I don't think your grandma will hear me. I complimented your grandma, so I'm not even going to feel bad about it. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not my favorite. I need it with marshmallows. do not I don't like casseroles to begin with, but if you're going to sneak into sweet potato, please put marshmallows on it. Ignore what Mandy said. Listen to mine. All right, what's your next one?
0: <laughs> okay, so a lot of people are going to be upset when they hear this. Maybe even you, Melissa, but to be totally honest – my absolute least favorite thing at Thanksgiving that I feel like I'm a hundred percent obligated to eat is the freaking turkey. I don't want to no, eat turkey. Fine. I don't understand why we have to eat turkey. Usually people cannot cook the turkey. Well, my husband usually is the one who does the turkey because he does it in the smoker and it always turns out great. But the fact of the matter is I eat turkey all year round. I eat turkey sandwiches. I eat turkey products. I eat turkey bacon. I eat turkey sausage. I eat turkey things all the time. So when it comes to Thanksgiving and everyone's like, oh, I can't wait to eat that turkey. I'm just like, you've never had a turkey sandwich before. Like I just ate turkey yesterday from Publix. You know what I mean? Like I don't don't need (laughs) turkey today. It's not like, why are we eating turkey? It's not special to me. You know, it's not like a I mean, and I guess it is to roast a whole turkey or to cook a whole turkey and whatever, you know, season it. And it's just the tradition. But I feel like a lot of people mess up their turkeys and they're dry and they're gross. And I don't – I definitely don't like to eat turkey at anyone else's house. Unless my husband is the one who made it, then I really will just – not even eat it. Like I will fill my plate with sides and not yeah. eat any protein the entire day. Like I don't need to eat no, turkey. It's a day that's for not carbs. why I'm there on Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah. yeah <laughs> for sure. No, I agree. My husband does, he does the fryer and he's done the smoker the past couple years. And I really like that because it like keeps its juices and stuff and that's good. But my brother-in-law started, he will like literally bring applesauce to bring on, to like Thanksgiving and stuff, and I thought it was weird, but then I put cranberry sauce on top of turkey. That's amazing, but um, otherwise oh, I yeah. don't really care. I could, yeah, I'm the same way. I just want carbs. That's just give me carbs all day. That's that's all I'm looking forward to. I'm going to wear jeans without or pants without a button. Like let me do let me do my worst here, but don't give me a protein. Yeah, Get out of here. G T H O. Exactly. Get
0: the heck out of here. All right. Do you have any fun, maybe fun dishes that are? actually acceptable to you to bring at Thanksgiving, something that you would like to see on the table or that you've even put on the table yourself that you have thought was um, a nice addition or a nice touch?
1: Yes. So I have my two, but my first one, and it's a pretty big hit, I got to say. I've said before, my son has food allergies. So I, for years, would make like 18 desserts because I just wanted to make sure everything he could have and you know keep it totally safe. So I'm, I'm pretty... I've got – I'm well-versed in the dessert side of um, of Thanksgiving. But one thing I like, and I don't even know how I found it, but I love it, is to take like tortillas, uh, taco skin, but put butter and cinnamon <laughs> over them and bake it and make it into like tortilla chips, so like cinnamon and sugar chips, and then make like Yum. apples. Yeah, like uh, – Almost like apple pie filling, and so you just like it's mm. it's a chip and dip situation. You can't you can't go wrong with the chip and dip situation. That sounds
0: really good. It yeah,
1: is. I like that. Yeah, it's a good. Um, I would eat that. Like that appetizer. sounds really good. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always
0: fun. All right, what do you got, Mandy? It sounds great. So my first thing is also kind of like an appetizer, and um, it's a thing I have made, and a lot of people love it. Like you said, it goes. They always go really fast. I'm actually making it tomorrow. So I do these little, I get like a French baguette and slice it really thin and then like, you know, dry them out in the oven, like bake them, like make them little crostinis. And then you put the brie cheese on top with like, mm. I always home make my cranberry sauce. I don't get out of a can. I do it with the cranberries oh, and, yeah, the yeah, yeah. and the sugar and all that fun stuff. Um, So then you top it with a little cranberry sauce and like a little sprig of rosemary, but it's just little cranberry brie crostini things. And it's so simple and so easy, but like oh my gosh, there is something about eating cranberry sauce with brie cheese on a piece of bread. Like that. There's just really nothing better than it. And it's really easy. It comes together really quickly. You can totally just look up that online. Um, If you want to bring something different to Thanksgiving, that won't cost you an arm and a leg and that you can put together really fast and impress everyone. Cause that's like always what people say. They're like, oh my gosh, what are these? These are amazing. I'm like, that was like the easiest thing ever. Like, I will bring that every year if that's what makes yeah. you happy. You know, like, it's so easy. It's just a little something different. And it has all the flavors of fall, all the flavors of Thanksgiving.
1: Nice. Are you, can I use canned? Because I'm not committing to the other stuff. Would I, it
0: mean, work? I mean, take work. I don't take your prejudices inside. It is asking, good.
2: Whatever. It's
0: like, it's like setting a McDonald's cheeseburger next to like a. I don't know, a place that makes really good cheeseburgers, cheeseburger. McDonald's, <laughs> like <asking>. also
1: McDonald's.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't shame my you know McDonald's I'm cheeseburgers. Yeah. Um, I feel, you know how I am with my food. I feel that the ingredients and the effort that you put in really makes a difference in the final product. So yes, you can use a can if you really want to, Melissa, but oh, it's I Thanksgiving. Do. Just go out of your way and take the 10 minutes it takes to make fresh nope. homemade cranberry sauce.
1: It's the principle. I want to hear the plop and the <laughs> and see the ridges. Well, eat that That's on how your I know it's time.
0: Eat that on your own time. The no, crostini deserves to it. have homemade cranberry sauce. No, and I'm not calling them
1: crusty. You can't put fake cranberry sauce on there and call it, or canned cranberry sauce and call it a crostini. You can't you can call it like no, you can't. Crusties or something. It would not be as good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, my last one, and this I started making fairly recently, um, probably in the beginning of the year before. COVID and all that crap. And we actually saw people. I make an amazing, and I can say this because it is really good. And it's not me. It's just because of the recipe. Um, Spinach artichoke dip like in a bread bowl.
0: Yes. So oh my gosh. Good. Yes. So good. Mm. And it's
1: not a typical, it's another uh, appetizer thing. It's not a typical thing, but it's very, very easy. Like it's super easy. So you can't screw it up. And then it looks cute because of the whole bread bowl situation. And um, it's delicious. And I love that. I'm like, Really having a hard time even thinking right now because my tongue is swelling up. Not swelling up. My tongue is (laughs) whatever the word is. I'm salivating a
0: lot right now thinking about it. Okay, Mandy, what you got? Okay, so my last and final thing is sadly it's a vegetable. I know um, you don't like vegetables, but why would you end it on this? I know. No, because it's actually one of my favorite things ever. So sometimes I make this at home, but it's a little extra to make it home. if it's not a holiday because it is a little effort, but it's Brussels sprouts with bacon and blue cheese, and they are freaking delicious. Melissa, you would even eat this. It's bacon. So literally the process is just slicing off the stems of the Brussels sprouts, cutting them in half, putting them in a, throwing baking them in the dish. trash. You're going to you're gonna you're gonna um, cook a bunch of thick cut bacon in a skillet, and then you're gonna dump all that bacon grease right on top of all those Brussels sprouts. Mix it all around. Turn the bacon into bacon bits. Put it on top. Cover it all with blue cheese. Put it in the oven. Oh my gosh, it's just ridiculous. It doesn't even taste like a Brussels sprout. It Just tastes like bacon fat with blue cheese all over it. It's
1: so delicious. I hate blue cheese. So you've lost me twice on this. You try to throw no, a vegetable well, at then me. Then it's not
0: for you. It's and not ranch you. is bitter enemy. <laughs>
1: I like the idea of all the bacon grease though I can get down with
0: that yes oh my gosh it's so good and they always go really fast too and it like looks really pretty like it's one of those things because it just has like all this mm, melted blue cheese and it's like you can see the bacon and the glistening fat like just Mm. everywhere oh my gosh and they always go really quick my kids even love them but yeah bacon and blue cheese brussels sprouts so it's like also pretty easy to do it just it just makes a lot whenever you do it you know it just like You wouldn't do it for a small batch. That's why I don't cook it at home. I only usually do it if I have to, you know, make a lot of it because we like it. But, like, there's only so much It doesn't seem like you can keep that well either. Like, it doesn't seem like you need one refrigerator. No, you have to eat it right away. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So those are our Thanksgiving least favorites and um, alternates to our least favorites, I guess. Yeah. I don't want turkey, but I will definitely eat bacon fat covered Brussels sprouts. I'll just eat the bacon fat. (laughs) If I came to your
1: house, I'd be like, just make me a side of just bacon fat. Everybody else would be eating Brussels sprouts and I'd just (laughs) eating it on my crusties and uh, really just having a good (laughs)
0: time. Well, that sounds awesome. Melissa, I hope you and your family have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And I'm sure I'll talk to you um, before then. No, I refuse to talk to you anymore. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the end of it. Um, but yeah, and I hope all of our listeners have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I know Yay. this year is a little different. Some people might be celebrating the holiday in a different way than they, you know, have in the past. But hopefully, however you are doing it this year, you enjoy your family and you have a great plate of food. Yeah, Carbs only. And possibly no turkey, if you're like me. (laughs) There you go. And remember, next
1: week we are off. That is the date on that is pulling up my calendar, the 24th. So we will not be here on the 24th, but we will be back on December 1st. Holy cow, we're talking about December. So um, look for us then. Don't forget about us in the meantime. And before we go, we are going to play a promo for the podcast. Excuse me, that's illegal. It's so funny, and it's like uh, the – the tagline i guess for it i never know we don't have a tagline so i don't know how people are this creative and do things it's a podcast that takes a hardcore look at softcore at softcore crimes like just not the murder stuff so it's oh, all yeah. the like little you know things and he's really good and he's super super funny so i have like dove into that this week it's really fun um so make sure you stick stick around and check that out Alright
0: guys, we will be back December 1st. That's my birthday actually. I didn't realize that was a Tuesday, but now I know. Uh, Yeah, so we'll be back on that day. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Two weeks. Bye.
2: Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips, Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal Dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.